Uh, we're about to read um, from Thessalonians. We're continuing the series, People of the Future, looking in detail at what we can learn from Thessalonians 1, or 1 Thessalonians, shall I say, and then all the chapters in 1 Thessalonians. Um, and this is a letter from Paul and other apostles to the church at Thessalonica. Um, and uh, Adrian just feels that we're right to dwell in Thessalonians for quite some time. Um, and, and that's great. So, uh, Bible reading uh, this morning will be uh, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 16 to 3, uh, verse 10. It will come up on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. In their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, in this way they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But brothers and sisters, <clears throat> when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. Uh, so we sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one um, would be upsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labours might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we are encouraged about you because of your faith. For now, we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Amen. May God bless that word to our hearts. Father God, as I begin to share and unpack what I believe you have laid on my heart to do, Father, I pray most sincerely that it is your words that will be heard, that the Holy Spirit will be able to interpret and translate my fumblings into your clear words for our hearts and individually to our hearts, that we may hear from you, not from frail man. Amen. Um, the title of uh, my talk today is Our Source of Joy. Our Source of Joy. Just a little bit of a reminder uh, that this letter to the Thessalonians is written by Paul in Corinth after Timothy returns to report the good news that the church in Thessalonica is vibrant, it's healthy, and it's staying true to the gospel. 
Now, Paul's incredibly frustrated because he's been dying to hear news. Uh, he's not been able to get an update for ages. He can't go anywhere near it because he's being persecuted and there's persecutions going on anyway. And he's just waiting for Timothy to return to find out what's happened there. Imagine the frustration of not being able to get up-to-date info just like that. The news was very slow to come by in those days. You couldn't just pick up the telephone. Now, I'm old enough to remember when you had to be careful when you picked up the telephone because you had a shared line with next door. You had to just check that you weren't interrupting somebody else's call. <laughs> and uh, then sometimes you're in the middle of a call and you could hear breathing. You thought, oh, someone's listening in. <laughs> I'll put the phone down. <laughs> Do you remember shared telephone lines? Yeah. Um, I remember the first time I sent an email and I sent it and I pressed go and I thought, really? Has that worked? And then I got a reply. I thought, well, wow, email. Wow, I can just do that from my computer. But it was fixed to a desk. I can remember the first time I was in a car and someone texted me on my phone. I thought, what was this? <laughs> I, th I thought you just called, made calls on a phone. Someone sent me a text message. I didn't even know what it was called then. Someone sent me some words. What, what's this? And very soon, we're all texting. Um, uh, you know, I've had a few technological issues getting ready for the sermon, uh, getting ready for the, the slides, should I say. And I've been able to just quickly get on the phone, quickly text Adrian, who's in satellites, and say, oh, can you just talk me through this bit? Talk me through how I get that song in and stuff. It's so easy for us today that we don't really understand how frustrating it must have been for Paul on the important mission of spreading the gospel to the Gentiles to find out how it's going. It must have been really painful. And so every word, you see that a letter, when he sent this letter, it would have been sent by a trusted courier. If you look at Romans, very specifically talks about Phoebe um, sending uh, the letter and taking it um, for safekeeping. It would have been sent with a trusted person so that it could get to the right place. So every word was especially important. And if there was any repetition in these letters, we know that the writer really, really wants to underline that point. So when we're pouring over Thessalonians thinking, wow, we're spending a long time on this small letter, uh, this is all the believers in Thessalonica would have had in terms of support. They didn't even have the Bible as we have it today. They had scriptures, but they didn't have the Bible. They would have been hanging on every single word. So when Adrian said to us, read the whole letter once to get an idea of what the first reading would be like, he then said, we're going to go into detail because... That's what they would have done. They would have gone into every single detail because every letter was important. The passage reiterates the story of persecution and suffering. Paul saying, indeed, we are destined to be persecuted. And also note, I paused when I said it, that Paul said, so long to be with you. I tried to be with you, but Satan stopped us. Now, when I preached last time, I, I made a comment. I made a statement that we need to remember that Satan is the ruler of this world. And it caused a bit of surprise. And there was discussions afterwards. And I just want to share with you why I said that. In John 14, 30, Jesus refers to Satan operating through Judas as the ruler of this world. Look it up. John 14, 30. Jesus' words, the ruler of this world. I will not speak with you much longer, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me as yourself. In Matthew 4, 8 to 9, when Satan takes Jesus up to the mountain, as well, says, look at all of these kingdoms. I'll give you these if you bow down and worship me. Jesus could have turned around if he were able to say, well, these kingdoms don't belong to you. But actually they did. Satan could have given those kingdoms to Jesus. That was the power of the temptation. But Jesus said, no, I will not bow down to you. 
you can give me the whole world, I will not bow down to you. Ephesians 2 and 6 mention about us fighting against the principalities and darkness of this world. And in John 16, 11, Jesus also again refers to Satan as the ruler or prince of the world because, he says, the ruler of this world has been condemned. Now, why stress this? It's important to stress it because we need to be aware of what we are up against as Christians. We need to be aware Satan is real. And one of the biggest tactics that Satan uses, I believe, in today's world is to convince people that he isn't. So we need to be aware of this. It's important, even as Christians, that we, that we know of him. Not that we study him, not that we try to get to know him in any personal way, but that we are aware. You see, like an occupying force, Satan has set himself up as ruler of this world and contaminated God's perfect creation. We look around us and we see wonder and beauty and we can see a glimpse. Paul talks about it as seeing a dim reflection of creation. All creation is groaning for salvation. But Satan has contaminated God's perfect creation and that's why we have suffering. That's why you don't have to look too far in this otherwise beautiful world and see unbelievable cruelty. That's why, despite the good things we try to do in our lives, so often we easily slip into things coming off the rails, things falling apart. That's why there is death. But one day, <laughs> Jesus will return. One day, there will be a new earth and a new heaven, free from all sin, free from Satan's contamination, where God and Jesus rule supreme, and Satan and death will be destroyed forever. And then we'll know what perfection is. Then we'll know what true beauty is because it will be uncontaminated. So please do look up those scriptures and, and, and ask, you know, ask for yourself. Anyway, despite the frustrations, the persecution and, and Satan's intervention, there is joy. It's mentioned three times in this passage that we've read, joy. And we're going to see what this passage can teach us about the source of joy. Joy is mentioned 430 times in the Bible, depending on what translation you're using. Uh, rejoice is another kind of word for it. You might find some other words, but uh, typically it's about 430 times you'll find it in the Bible. Um, the dictionary gives this definition of joy. The emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. That's what joy is. Think for a moment and be honest with yourselves. I'm not going to ask anyone to reveal what your thoughts are, okay? But right now, be brutally honest with yourself. What are the things that bring you most joy in life? Just 10 seconds. What are the things that bring you most joy in life? Okay. Your thoughts may well have ranged from chocolate to children. <laughs> or the first coffee of the morning. Oh to honeymooning in the Maldives. But as Christians, I'm hoping that at least some of you, your thoughts resolved around God. That some of you thought of that moment you first became a Christian and remembered that, a feeling of inexplicable joy as your sins were washed away. And that some of you thought of the times you felt close to God, of the joy that comes from serving him. And as we begin to unpack what we can learn about joy from this passage, please do continue to reflect on your own source of joy and how they align or otherwise. 
Okay, in the Bible, we'll find lots of references to joy, like I said, and before we get into the specifics of this passage, uh, we'll have all heard of the joy of the Lord. That's quite a phrase in Christian circles, the joy of the Lord. Let's call it the joy of God. <laughs> um, it's the same thing. But what does the Bible tell us about the joy of God? Loads, but let's just pick on a few highlights here. The, 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 in Psalm 16, verse 11, it says this, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your presence is fullness of joy. God's joy is complete. It's full. It doesn't need anything else. It is complete. And it's found in his presence. If you wonder why you sometimes feel closest and most joyous in worship, when we're in worship, we can get close to God. We can get close to God in other ways as well, but there's something about singing God's praises that brings us into his presence. And we can experience joy in that moment as we begin to get close to God. But it's complete, it's fullness. You see, every other form of joy that you might look for in the world, it falls short. I was reading an article the other day. Um, I have to confess that I'm now of an age where I get these communications about you might want to start your pension early. <laughs> in a few years, you can take some of it out. <laughs> I think I don't want to be thinking about that. <laughs> but I was reading this article that came up in my newsfeed about the idea of retiring early. And it was written by this guy who was 34 years old when he retired. Retired with a few million in the bank because he'd been a banker and retired. And he shared in this article that for the first week, he felt joy waking up and just being able to do what he wanted. And then over the next couple of weeks, the joy began to subside. And he realised that what he thought would be joy in his life for the rest of his life, it didn't cut it. He needed something more. For a lot of us, particularly if we're not Christians, achieving goals is the thing that we think will bring joy, whether it's financial, career, or family. We think achieving our goals will bring joy. Jim Carrey, famous actor who's both rich and famous, says this, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. Prince, phenomenal musician, right at the top of his career, achieved some of the most amazing singing music, just a phenomenal musician, one of the tightest sounds you would ever experience if you went to see a live gig. Phenomenal, and he had almost achieved godlike status as in terms of his fame and reputation. He said this, I've been to the mountaintop, there's nothing there. All of that means nothing. Johnny Wilkinson, when was it? 2003 or something, Rugby World Cup? Yep, yeah. um, looking to Amanda there to help me. <laughs> um, basically won for England the Rugby World Cup after decades of trying to get it. And it had been his goal, you know, I want to be part of the, the team that gets this. And he did this drop kick, am I using the right thing here? Yes, did this drop kick that, that won. I mean, I don't follow rugby, but even I heard about it <laughs> because it was such a big thing. You'd have thought, wow, he's achieved that phenomenal goal at the age of 24, I think. He says this. And he uses the mountaintop as an example again. He says, the problem with reaching the peak of the tallest mountain in your dreams is that that path can only wind down the other side further and further away from this idyllic moment. I had pictured this image, worshipped it even for years, maybe as long as I could remember. 
As we walked around the field in our celebratory lap of honour, I could feel my dream beginning to slip away. The brightness was already fading, and with each second that passed, so was my happiness. You can achieve the most amazing things in life, and it's not going to bring joy. In my own experience, and I, and I share this, I, I share this out of an area of weakness. You know, I've, I've, I've acquired a few letters after my name. Uh, this year, I've got a, a title in front of my name. I've got a few awards I've put on my studio. And do you know what? I look at all of it, and I think it's, 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 it means nothing. It means nothing. And I look at some of it, and I'm ashamed of some of it, because I think that doesn't represent achievement. It represents where my motives were wrong. Not all of it. Some of it was wholesome. But you know, that there, that represents where I had my eye off the goal. You see, you can succeed in areas of life and it's not going to bring you joy. Because only complete joy is possible through God. I think I'm going to have to speed up <laughs> with this. But the other thing that we learned from the Old Testament in particular is, is the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is not dependent on anything else. Habakkuk 3, 17 to 18 says this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The writer in Habakkuk knew where true joy was. It wasn't in all of those other things. They could go, he would still have joy. There's so many schemes out there for achieving happiness. Happiness, which is, of course, the experience of joy. Plenty of schemes out there. I found a few. There are six, apparently, there are six conditions of happiness. I then found eight factors of happiness. I found a, a graphic that showed 10 steps to happiness. Pick a number, you'll find someone that's got a scheme with that number. This is the way to happiness. Some of them are quite good. Some of the steps are quite good, like judge less, fear less, be thankful. Those are good, those are wholesome, there's nothing wrong with them. There's some bizarre ones as well, like possess a profound philosophy. Do I even understand that? <laughs> Courage, interesting. Chanting, some involving isolation tanks. <laughs> Some bizarre stuff out there, but you, you will not need to look far to find somebody telling you that they have a scheme. That if you do this, that and the other and put these conditions in place, you will be happy. Now, you may not be following one of those schemes. You, you probably have still have your own set of conditions like, well, if I can own a home um, or if I can have a specific car, if I can get married. These things are going to bring me happiness. Um, I have a bit of a weakness with cars. <laughs> in fact, before the children came along, I worked out one day. I'd been driving for 24 years since I passed my test. And I counted up the number of vehicles I'd had in that time, and it came out to 24. <laughs> bit of a weakness. I like collecting classic cars and motorbikes and stuff like that. Since children came along, that's, that, that's completely changed. I think I've had like three cars in the last <laughs> decade and a half. <laughs> changes everything. But, you know, that, that was my weakness. I thought... Well, if I can get just the, the dream car, then I'm going to be really happy with this experience. You know what? After a week of owning the next car, I was seeing its flaws and its faults. And its, I was thinking, no, this, this doesn't actually bring happiness. It's just a car. William Morris um, thinks that artistic freedom brings happiness. And many people quote this, have nothing in your houses that you do not know to be beautiful or believe to be useful. Anyone heard that quote before? 
That's a scheme for happiness, apparently. Dickens identifies what most people see as happiness in David Copperfield, and here's a quote. Annual income, 20 pounds. Annual expenditure, 19 and six. That's slightly less than 20 pounds for those who don't know. Um, result, happiness. Annual income, 20 pounds. Annual expenditure, 20 pounds, ought and six. It's a little bit more than 20. Result, misery. You heard that expression. And some people feel, as long as I can stay on top of my finances, that will bring me happiness. But as you've seen from other quotes, it doesn't. You can have all the money in the world and it won't bring happiness. Psalm 46, therefore we will not fear, though the earth give away and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Though all those things will happen, if I have my trust in God, I will be happy. So it's not dependent on anything else. The other thing we find out about the, the joy of the Lord is it's a characteristic of God. God is joyful. Did you know that? Sometimes we have this impression that God is this sort of stern person, almost like a headmaster type um, stern figure who will correct your mistakes and show you where you're going wrong and have no joy. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty. He will save, he will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over you with singing. I'm looking forward to hearing that. <laughs> I'm not sure if I've heard the singing of God yet. I don't think I have. But God is so joyful over us that he sings with joy over us. Isn't that incredible? Um, Nehemiah 8.10, he said to them, go and eat delicacies and drink sweet drinks and send portions to those whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to you, Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's not, that's not there saying, if you have joy in the Lord, you'll have strength. It's saying the joy of the Lord. You know, God's joy. That will sustain you. That will give you strength. Isaiah 62.5, with the joy of a bridegroom over a bride... Your God rejoices over you. Probably, you know, that, that epitome of human joy, you know, when you're just about to get married to the one you love. That's the joy that God is using to describe that he has over us. Just pause for a moment. Have you experienced this complete unconditional joy of God? That's an intrinsic part of his character. If not, he wants to impart it today. He wants to renew it today if you've had it and you feel you've lost it. You're thinking, where's that joy gone? Reach out to God this morning. I don't know the reasons for your individual circumstances, but God does. It's clear that if we're close to God in his presence, dependent on nothing else, and because of his character, that we should be experiencing joy that goes beyond anything we can imagine. Ask God for his joy. The ultimate source of true joy comes from God. The, the, those scriptures have highlighted that. But um, there's another 
way that joy comes to us as shown in the broader picture of Thessalonians. And I, I preached on this a few weeks ago. Uh, joy is brought by the Spirit. Last time uh, we used the passage 1 Thessalonians 1 6, it says, You became imitators of us and the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering and with joy given by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings joy. Joy is described as one of the fruits of the Spirit. That means if we are dwelling in the Spirit of God, we will begin to demonstrate joy. Along with Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. Joy in the Spirit is an intrinsic part of the kingdom of God. Romans 14.17 says this, for the, kingdom, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of God. 1 Peter, it defies understanding. 1 Peter 1, 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. I spent a lot of time talking about the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit last time. I'm not going to just go through it all again. I want to get to the main point of today's sermon. But just pause for a moment. Do you have the joy brought by the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is available to every believer. The Holy Spirit is sent by God to help us in this fallen world. So the Holy Spirit is effectively a conduit. <laughs> we know that God cannot abide sin, that sin and God do not go together, even in small measure. So how can God, God's presence be felt in a sinful world, in a world contaminated by sin? This is the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus promised. The Holy Spirit is God's presence brought forward to us to experience now, even though we live in a sinful world. And every Christian can have the joy of the Holy Spirit in their heart, in their soul, sustaining them. If you don't feel you have that, or if you had it and you think, you're feeling it's, it's not there anymore, it seems to have been so clouded by everything else, ask God, ask the Holy Spirit for his joy. So we come now to the main focus um, of, of what I want to share today. We've looked at uh, God as the source of joy. We've looked at the Holy Spirit as the conduit of joy, bringing it to the Christian. But what does this passage specifically tell us um, about some detail of joy? It teaches us this. Let's read, reread verse 19. So chapter 2, verse 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown to boast of before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Who are we going to have most joy when Jesus comes? Who are we going to have most joy? What's going to give us most joy to tell him, to rejoice over? Is it not, of course, you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul is saying the Thessalonians, they are his source of joy before Jesus them their spiritual development and three seven to nine um, underlines this so in all our distress and affliction we were reassured about you brothers and sisters through your faith for now we are alive again <laughs> when you experience joy you feel alive for now we are alive again if you stand firm in the lord 
For how can we thank God enough for you, for all the joy we feel because of you before our God? Paul cannot express enough. He can't thank God enough for the joy he's experiencing because of the Thessalonians. The source of Paul's joy is the people as they develop in faith. His joy in the presence of Jesus is them. They are his glory and joy. Paul doesn't know how to thank God enough in return for all the joy that he brings them. It's clear that Paul and the others consider the spiritual development of other people to be more joyful than the things of the world, to be more joyful than perhaps even their own experience, to be more joyful than their own ministries. No doubt this spiritual development that Paul was so happy to see expressed probably showed itself through their faithfulness to the gospel, definitely, through the development of gifts and ministries that, that, that were reported, through the autonomy that the church was beginning to serve God, even though they were cut off from the support of the apostles, they were serving God autonomously. And this brought Paul joy. What's the key here? It's Paul's joy in seeing the development of others. And this points to a real kingdom value that we should all be demonstrating. Deriving joy from the spiritual development of our brothers and sisters. This is a kingdom value. And a lot of the time the church misses it. We're too concerned with our own progression, with our own position, with our own status in church. Three things I've got to say about this joy and then we're done. Number one, it's counterculture. Our culture teaches us to derive joy from success, but success is so often competitive. <laughs> it seeks to elevate oneself over others. That's the society we live in. I lead a load of students in trying to make, um, make us a success in the music industry, and I'm constantly having to show them that they need to stand out in some way. They need to show how they, their solution, their musical expertise is, is, is perfect for that job and that other people's might not be. It's very competitive. It leaves a little bit of a, uh, of a bad taste. At the same time, I'm trying to serve my students and it's a bit of a tension because um, actually getting work in the music industry is all about saying, look at me, I'm great. <laughs> I can do this job better than anyone else. Give me the work. And that's so true of many other industries. This is the world's value. But Paul isn't persuaded by that. He's not getting joy from his own position. He's not getting joy from his own ministry. He's getting joy from seeing the Thessalonian Christians excel. Our culture teaches us to derive joy from possessions. Marketing is all based on convincing us that we need more. We need more to satisfy us. Our culture teaches us to derive joy from activities. If you can do this and get access to that, um, great. There's some good. At best, our culture does at least try to teach us that we can derive joy from family, but then often in quite an insular way. Let's get the best spot on the beach <laughs> at the expense of another family. It's counterculture. To derive joy from other people is counterculture to the society we live in. Because the society we live in is all about us exceeding, us excelling, us succeeding, us getting to a place higher, elevated above others. 
And this kingdom value is we seek the good of others ahead of ourselves and we celebrate with joy when they excel. We need to be a people who find joy in the spiritual development and maturity of our brothers and sisters. We need to not feel threatened by that, but feel genuine joy in how they are able to serve the kingdom of God because it's not about us, it's about God. That's the first thing I wanted to say. It's counterculture. And we as a church generally have to stop following the culture of the world and follow the culture of the kingdom and align our thinking with kingdom values, not worldly values. Second thing I wanted to say about this is, is, is this joy of others, it comes from the heart of Jesus. He taught it, Matthew 7, 12. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. He taught it. He modelled it, John 13, 12 to 14. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. The humbling. We should be serving one another. We should be looking to serve one another. Not be congratulated by one another, but to serve one another. Jesus modelled it. And Jesus commanded it. John 13, 34 to 5. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This was our verse of the year um, a couple of years ago. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's so counterculture. When people see it in action, they think, wow, these people have a genuine love for each other. I can't explain it. I've not, I've not experienced this. And do you know what? There have been several people, outsiders, that I've spoken to from the church to say, there's, there's something here. There's some, you seem to really care about each other. You seem to really be like a family, like you love each other. And it's brought some people to salvation. And that's the, I'm proud to say, I, I get joy from that, that we as a people have inspired others because we love each other, but we need more. And as we get bigger, the temptation for worldly values to come in will be great and we need to maintain that love for each other as the father has loved me so i have loved you now remain in my love if you keep my commands you will remain in my love just as i have kept my father's commands and remain in his love i told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete my command is this love each other as i have loved you how did jesus love us he laid down everything for us. He allowed himself to be tortured and crucified for us. And Jesus says, this is how we should love one another. That's the second thing. Jesus taught it, modeled it, commanded it. And finally, the third thing I want to say about this, finding joy in each other, 
is this is how the church is supposed to be. This is how the church is supposed to be. Philippians 2, 1 to 5. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, of one mind. Do not out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, sorry, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with other, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. If you want to serve God, it means becoming a servant. It means preferring someone else to you. It means celebrating with joy when people grow in the faith. Romans 12, 10 to 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Again, above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. See, Jesus brought this new command and it had massive implication. It was no longer... Um, number one commandment, as we know, is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And then the second, then to love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus' new command of love went beyond loving your neighbor as yourself. It went, love your brothers and sisters above yourself. This is kingdom value. This is what we as a church should be doing. This is what we as individuals should be looking to be. Final passage, Galatians 5, 13 to 14. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we've seen earlier and beyond. You fulfill the law with that, but Jesus calls us to go beyond it, beyond the law. We've come to the end and I'm, I'm assuming this has been a challenging talk because I found it challenging preparing it. We're probably miles away from where Paul is in, in finding genuine joy when we see others developing Christ. If I'm honest, I am. Most of, the more, most of the time I spend more attention interested in my own spiritual development than deriving joy from others. At times I grasp it. I can remember some specific elements of sheer joy where I saw people that I had some small part in bringing them to Christ, seeing them develop, it brought joy. I get it. I can relate to Paul, but I... Nowhere near as much as Paul. And that's a challenge to me. And it's a litmus test to us all. How are we doing as a body of Christ? How are we doing 
in serving God in our church, in our community? Are we looking to our own development above others? Are we looking to our own ministry above others? We're all different. We're all at different stages. Only God can put his finger on the specifics of your own heart. But if you desire to change, if you desire to get that joy, it all comes back to the presence of God. We need to spend time in the presence of God. I'm going to ask Will and the band to come back now and begin to lead us gently in some worship. And as we first begin to, as we first begin to lead us, perhaps you might not want to sing. Perhaps you might want to just spend some time in reflection. But as the worship continues, then I believe that the, the presence of God is here if we want it. We reach out to God and say, I want your presence. I want to be in your presence more than anything else. He can meet us. <laughs>